Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. Today I'm going to cover Romans 16, verses 1 through 16. Our context is this. In chapter 15, Paul has exhorted the Romans to unity. The big division in the church was between Jew and Gentile, strong and weak. Generally the Jews were weak because they were scrupulous about keeping certain laws, dietary laws, Sabbath day laws, festival day laws, that kind of thing. And the Gentiles didn't care about that, and so they, Paul calls them the strong because their conscience is strong about about doing that sort of thing. And so after exhorting them to unity, he now finishes his, finishes his letter in chapter 16. Verses 1 through 16 are his personal greetings to people in the church. Now you would think this would be boring. Actually, this is going to be quite an interesting Bible study. There's a lot of stuff in here, believe it or not. We start with verse 1, Romans 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church in Sincrea. Now this sister Phoebe is, of course, a fellow believer, not a blood sister. Phoebe probably carried the letter from Corinth to Rome, according to, to the NIV Study Bible. Sincrea, by the way, is five miles from Corinth. It's the port city of Corinth, east of Corinth, six miles east of Corinth on the Saronic Gulf. That's the same gulf upon which the Greeks fought the Persians in the famous Battle of Salamis. Very well-known gulf there. And Sincrea was a separate city, even though it was the port city of Corinth. It was a separate city, and there was a separate church there, a church in Sincrea. Which, by the way, proves that churches back then were not provincial or based on dioceses and things like that. That's later organization in church history. At the beginning, churches were just simple house churches, and there was one in Sincrea. Phoebe was there. He carries the letter from Corinth to Rome at Paul's behest. Now, she's called a servant of the church. The Holman Christian Study Bible calls her a servant. The NIV margin has a deaconess because you could translate that word. There's a feminine word for servant. The word is ambiguous enough that some people say, well, there's a separate office of deaconess, or it could mean that Phoebe was just a servant and there was not a particular office meant it. Just, there is no word for office in the, in the Greek anywhere. But, it, but if you take it as a deaconess, then it means it's a recognized group of women who were officially recognized by the church who were serving the church. Now, if, if that translation is correct, if the NIV margin is correct, and Phoebe was a deaconess, then this shows that women can be deaconesses in the church. And I have no problem with that. Remember, the strictures against women teaching in 1 Timothy 2.12 refer to teaching and exercising authority, not to serving the church in general. 1 Timothy 2.12 says, I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she is to be silent. In other words, silent in teaching, don't teach. Now, here's some examples of service women did in the early church. They attended female converts at baptism. For modesty's sake, I guess. They visited the sick in the hospitals. They visited people who were in prison. Adam Clark says the deaconesses did the service work that deacons could not do. Now, the office died out, according to Jameson, Foss, and Brown. The office died out in the Latin church in the 10th or 11th century and in the Greek church in the 12th century in the early Middle Ages. It's gone. And... Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say that, quote, modern attempts, however, to revive this office have seldom found favor, either from the altered state of society or the abuse of the office or both. Well, we're probably not going to have deaconesses today in churches because of our feminist altered state of society where it's a sin to call anybody an S, an actress. Oh, no, we've got to call them an actor because we have to be gender neutral. Just completely obliterate the difference between a man and a woman. That's the problem with the 21st century is nobody knows the difference between a man and a woman. And as a result, we have sexual anarchy and chaos to Hades with it. But at any rate, if you want to have a deaconess in your church or if you don't want to have deaconesses in church, it doesn't matter to me. I remember one time I was in a 
I was a, a deacon in a Baptist church, and in a Baptist church, a deacon is the same thing as an elder, which is another travesty of church government. But anyway, I was a deacon, and we had to, we decided, the, the pastor of the church decided we needed to have deaconesses. So we had elections, and we elected some deaconesses. And all of a sudden, ironically, it was some women in the church complained. No, we shouldn't have deaconesses. The Bible doesn't allow to have deaconesses. I'm thinking to myself, well, but right here, if you translate that as deaconess, the Bible does allow deaconesses. And it's not violating any of the scriptures for a woman to not teach or exercise authority over a man. So what is the big deal here? Well, the pastor pulled the election. We're not going to have deaconesses because it would cause some people to get upset, some women to be upset. Now, I, you know, you think about maybe they were upset because maybe a woman would be chose as a deaconess Oh, and it was a Baptist church, and deacons had authority as an elder, and so deaconess is close to deacon. Maybe people were thinking these women would have authority in the church, and that might be what the problem was. I don't know what the problem was, but anyway, deaconesses are okay, folks. Paul says he commended his sister Phoebe. She carried the letter. This was typical, usual, to give letters of commendation of one member to another member of a church. They didn't have police reports and Internet where you could go search people's names online and all that, so they had to rely on word-of-mouth recommendations. We go to verse 2 of Romans 16. So you should welcome her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever matter she may require your help. For indeed, she has been a benefactor of many and of me also. Now, what kind of assistance did Paul request for her? Could be financial support, but probably not because she was wealthy. She probably didn't need any. How do we know she was wealthy? Because in verse 2, it says she has been a benefactor of many and of me also, of Paul also. So she's been giving money to people, so she probably didn't need money. So what other kind of assistance could the Roman church give Phoebe? Directing her as to where the saints live. Oh, yeah, so-and-so lives there, so-and-so lives there. That's John Gill's idea. John Gill has another idea. Giving Phoebe counsel and advice concerning any secular business she may have had in Rome. Just help her out. Strangers in a strange town, you know, you always need help. I lived in China for years. I know how that goes. You need a lot more help than the natives do. Now, Phoebe was a benefactor. Who did she give her money to, perhaps? Perhaps to the apostles and their co-workers, as Steve Ackerson and Adam Clark say. And I'm sure that's probably true if she's giving money to Paul, as it says here in verse 2. The women, there were women that supported Jesus in exactly the same way in Jesus' ministry earlier, 30, 30, 25, 30 years earlier, Luke 8, 1 through 3. Soon afterward, he, Jesus, was traveling from one town and village to another, preaching and telling the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary called Magdalene, seven demons had come out of her, Joanna the wife of Chusa, Chusa, Herod's steward, Susanna, and many others who were supporting them from their possessions. They were supporting them from their possessions. Now, this shows that women had money back then in the ancient world. You know, we, all, we tend to think that women were just helpless slaves back then. No, they weren't. Even though in Greek society they had to stay in the house and they couldn't eat dinner with when male customers, male guests came into the house, they had to go retire to their separate quarters. They couldn't hold property in their own name and had to be held in the name of another man. They couldn't sue in courts unless they had a male relative or a male benefactor prosecute the case for them. So they had a lot of legal disabilities, but that doesn't mean they couldn't own money. There are lots of cases in Greek history where people married women for the money because they had laws that protected the women, actually. For example, I think in Greek, Greek in, in, in Athens, you married a woman and then you dumped her. The dowry that she had supported goes back to the woman 
And so that was a big incentive against getting divorced. So that means women did have money. Notice that Paul says, a sister in a manner worthy of the saints, which means that it's shameful for saints not to help other saints. We need to help each other out. That should be obvious. Verse 3, Romans 16, Paul continues, Give my greetings to Prisca and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. Now Prisca is Priscilla. Prisca is a shortened form of Priscilla. And Aquila is her husband. They were close friends of Paul. Let me track out their their itinerary here. They they were Roman Jews. They got kicked out of Rome by Claudius's decree when Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome. This is the late 40s, early 50s. I forgot the exact dates. But at any rate, they end up in Corinth when they got kicked out of Rome. And Paul meets them in Corinth. They were fellow tent makers, and so they work together. And then Paul takes them. That was at the third. I think it was at the end of the third journey. He's on his way back to Jerusalem. He takes, a, he takes Aquila and Priscilla back to Ephesus, and then he takes Paul heads back to Jerusalem, leaves Aquila and Priscilla at Ephesus, and then Aquila and Priscilla apparently went back to Rome because Paul's greeting them at Rome as he writes writes his letter. So he obviously knew them very well, and so he gave his greetings to them. Now Priscilla is mentioned before Aquila, and oh, how much stuff has been based on that. Because the wife is mentioned before the husband. And from that little detail, screwed up Christian feminists have built up a whole theology. They say she was the leader of the family. She was the teacher, not Aquila. He was just a wimp. Well, let's deal with that. Acts 18.2, first part of the verse. And he, Paul, found in Corinth a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. So who's mentioned first in that verse in Acts 18.2? Aquila is mentioned first, and then his wife Priscilla is mentioned second. So should we take that detail and build up a whole theology from that? A male chauvinist pig theology, a misogynist theology. Because obviously Aquila is mentioned before Priscilla in that verse. The order of the names is irrelevant. It's stupid to, to say that, to, to, to derive any inference from that. Here's what John Gill says in a much more elegant fashion than I just did. He says the order of the names is without design, which is what I'm saying. It just, it just That's the way Paul wrote it. It doesn't mean anything. Here's a quote from Gill. For sometimes he is put before her, Aquila is put before Priscilla, as in Acts 18.2. That's the verse I just read you. And it is a rule with the Jews that there is neither first nor last in the scriptures. That is, strict order is not always observed. It is sometimes inverted. Find nothing depends upon it. Hence the reasons assigned by some that she was first converted or had more zeal than her husband are uncertain and impertinent. And so other, and of course later inferences from that is that she was not only first converted or had more zeal than her husband, she was the teacher and the leader of the household. Well, John Gill says this is impertinent to say that. Well, if Gill could read present-day present Christian feminists, he would call them more than impertinent. Mm, stupid, perhaps. Oh, oh maybe. Oh, 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 I shouldn't have said that. As true as it is. Jameson Fawcett and Brown disagrees with Gill. He says Priscilla was listed first because she was more helpful to, to the church. So Jameson Fawcett and Brown do derive something about the fact that Aqu Priscilla is mentioned before Aquila, but I could just say, okay, well, then how do you explain Acts 18.2? Jameson Fawcett and Brown, how do you explain that? Does that mean because Aquila is mentioned first that he was more helpful to the church than Priscilla was? Nonsense. We go to Romans 16, verse 4, referring to Aquila and Priscilla, who risked their own necks for my life. Not only do I thank them, but so do all the Gentile churches. Now, there's no other record of this risking of the life for Paul, either in the New Testament or elsewhere. But it must have been widely known, as the NIV study Bible points out, because 
Paul says, all the Gentile churches thank Priscilla and Aquila. So Paul is probably referring to the fact that all the Gentile churches know of what Priscilla and Aquila did for Paul, saving his neck, whenever that was. Here's some speculations as to when this might have happened. Could have been when Paul faced dangers during his two years in Ephesus. You recall the story in Acts 19, I think it was, because of the uproar by Demetrius and the craftsmen when they were all in the amphitheater there yelling praises to Diana that Paul allegedly had traduced because he, he was against paganism and for Jesus. Maybe it was against the insurrection against Paul at Corinth because remember Priscilla and Aquila were with, were with Paul at Corinth and they were with Paul at Ephesus. This is when the Jews dragged him to the judgment seat of Gallio. You might recall that story. Maybe Priscilla and Aquila somehow convinced Gallio to let him loose. We don't know. It's not mentioned anywhere. This risking their own necks is a common metaphor that we use all the time in English, but John Gill points out that the metaphor comes from this, laying one's neck down in place of another about to be executed, risking your neck, saying, hey, I'll put my neck down here, and so you can execute me instead of the other person. Romans 16, verse 5, Paul continues, greet also the church that meets in their home. That's Priscilla and Aquila. Greet my dear friend Eponidas, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. So Aquila and Priscilla had a church in their home. They had another church in their home in Corinth, actually, in 1 Corinthians 16, 19. Paul says this, The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, along with the church that meets in their home. So they had two churches, one in Ephesus, one in Rome, and they had it was a house church. All Christian churches, by the way, met in homes until the middle of the end of the 3rd century. That's when Constantine gave pagan temples to the Christians. For conversion from pagan temples to Christian basilicas, they called them. One of the worst things that ever happened to the church, in my humble opinion, I believe in meeting at homes. It's much, if you want to enjoy church life, meet in a home with some good people. Not that it's a guarantee that it'll be happy, because there's a lot of other stuff you got to do, too, besides just meeting in the home. But it's a great start. Here's some examples of how you can do church better in a New Testament way if you use a home. Here's a quote from Steve Ackerson. New Testament churches were small. Relational, participatory, intimate, accountable groups of believers who met in homes. It's hard to be accountable, folks, to other believers when you're sitting in a pew in a megachurch. It's certainly hard to be intimate when you're an atom in the midst of the mass of your fellow molecules. It's hard to be participatory when you can't say anything, but only the big shot pastor up at the front with a microphone can say anything. It's hard to be relational when all you do is fellowship with the back of somebody's head in front of you. Let me read you another quote from Steve Ackerson. Everything the New Testament counts as normative for church practice works best in a relatively smaller group. Participatory worship, elder-led consensus, the Lord's Supper is a family meal, church discipline, genuine, genuine relationships, encouraging one another, accountability, and disciple-making. Hear, hear. Here's some scriptures of other churches. All the churches you see in the New Testament are, are in homes. I've got one, two, three, four examples here. 1 Corinthians 16, 19. I just read that one to you. Aquila Priscilla greets you along with the church that meets in their home. Colossians 4, 15. Number two, give my greetings to the brothers in Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her home. Nympha is in Colossae. Philemon 1, 1 through 2. Probably in Colossae, maybe in Laodicea. I can't really tell there. But anyway, Nympha had a church in her home. Philemon 1, 1 through 2, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. So Philemon had a house, a church in his house. Philemon, where was he from? I think he was from Colossae. James 2, 2 through 4, this is a good one here. For example, a man comes into your meeting, all right, think, 
The man comes into the meeting. Does he come into a church with the altar chairs, with the pulpit, with the big stuffed chair that the pastor sits in, with the altar rail, with the raised platform? Is that what you're thinking? For example, a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor man dressed in dirty clothes also comes in. If you look with favor on the man wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor man, stand over there, or, and this is critical here, or sit here on the floor by my footstool, hupopodius, hupopodium or something like that, it's a Greek word, a footstool that goes under the foot, sit here on the floor by my footstool. How many footstools do you see in church buildings? You don't. Where are footstools found? They're found in homes. Now, Paul mentions in verse 5, Eponidas, his beloved brother, this is one of the many people that Paul knew in Rome, even though he had never been there. Well, so then how did he know Eponidas and all those other people that he's going to mention later on in Rome if he'd never been to Rome to meet them? Well, Rome was a city of transplants. Paul's acquaintances probably, probably lived elsewhere when Paul had met them, and then they moved to Rome. We go to verse 6, chapter 16. Paul says, Greet Mary, who has worked very hard for you. Now, Mary, that doesn't narrow it down too much. You know, the Jews had this horrible practice of just using first names. There's six persons known by Mary in the New Testament, according to the NIV Study Bible, and this Mary is unknown. So that's great. Now we only have to sort out the other five, like the Virgin Mary, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, Mary the wife of Cleophas, you know, all those Marys. Enough to drive one insane. Verse 7 of chapter 16, Paul continues, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow countrymen and fellow prisoners. They are noteworthy in the eyes of the apostles, and they were also in Christ before me. Andronicus and Junia, or some translations have Junius, were saved before Paul was saved. Paul was saved in the late 40s, so even before then. This this book was written in the early 50s. 50, when was it written? 54, 55, I forgot, 56, somewhere around there. And so, long time ago, Andronicus and Junius had gotten saved. They were, Paul, they were Paul's fellow countrymen, which probably, although not definitely, probably refers to the fact that they were Jews like Paul was. Now, they were also his fellow prisoners. Now, the big issue here in this verse is because of feminists. They have looked at that word Junia and they say, Aha! Junia was a woman and she was an apostle. Well, they make a lot of assumptions to prove that, and I'm going to shoot down every one of them very easily. I mean, I used to practice law, and I had the worst cases because I was a nobody lawyer, and I had the worst cases, and I knew I was going to lose, but I wish I'd had this case to prove that Junia was not a woman apostle because it would have been so easy to win. So let's start with that. Well, before, before I get into that, let's look at the phrase noteworthy among the apostles. The V is actually in the Greek. The definite article V is there. That tends to favor the option that the apostles that were referred to were the 12 apostles, the original 12 apostles. Well, if that's the case, and the NIV study Bible points that, if that's the case, well, then how can Andronicus and Junia be of the original 12 apostles? They can't be. So that means that the word apostles down there might not refer to the original 12 apostles, but might refer to something else. So there's a lot of decisions we have to make here. First of all, is Junius, or is Junius a man or a woman? Is Junius Junius, or, or, is, or is she Junia? Second, when were they fellow prisoners with Paul? Was it while Paul was, was at the same time that they were in prison together, or was it at different times? Next, they were noteworthy in the eyes of the apostles. Is that a proper translation of that? Were they noteworthy in the eyes of the apostles, the apostles looking at them and saying, ooh, these are noteworthy people? Or 
as many translations have, were they noteworthy in among the apostles? What does that mean? They were one of the apostles. Well, then, well, then if it's the apostles, one of the apostles, it obviously can't be the original twelve. So we have to figure out who apostles are. The apostles are the people like Paul and Barnabas, people who Timothy who go out and start churches, not the original twelve. Little a apostles, I call them, as opposed to capital A apostles. So you see, there's a lot of issues here. So, well, let's start out with the word apostles. Is it the original twelve? The the tends to make it sound like it's the capital T, the 12 apostles. I don't believe so. Because apostles is often used of people who were not of the original 12, but they ministered. They were people who ministered by establishing churches. Let me give you some examples. In Acts chapter 14, verse 4, this is on the first journey. Paul and Barnabas are at Iconium. But the people of the city were divided, some siding with the Jews and some with the apostles. Well, obviously it's not the original 12 apostles. This is on the first journey. There were only two apostles there. Paul and Barnabas. Same chapter, Acts 14, verse 14, the apostles, Barnabas and Paul. So Paul's called an apostle. He's not the original 12. Barnabas is called an apostle. He's not the original 12. So those apostles tore their robes. 1 Thessalonians 2, 7. Paul tells the Thessalonians, although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, and the we there refers to himself and his fellow, and I'm not sure who was with him on this trip to Thessalonians, or he could be using the editorial we, the royal we, but the point is, is Paul, at least Paul, was not a, one of the original 12 apostles, so the word apostles there is used, in a sense, not referring to the original 12. All right, so we're going to assume that apostles here is not the original 12, despite that article, the, in front of it. Now, let's look at the word junia. It's in the Holman Christian Study Bible translation, junia sounds like a woman. Junia actually is a feminine name, and so feminists use this to show that this is a scriptural example of a woman apostle. Now, if there were a scripture that for completely forbade there being a woman apostle, then we'd have the feminists dead in their rights, and we wouldn't translate Junia as Junia, we'd translate it as Junius. But unfortunately, there is no scripture that says that, that explicitly forbids a woman apostle. There's scriptures that forbid a woman teacher or an elder, but not an apostle. First Timothy 2.12, I do not allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Instead, she is to be silent. That's in the passage concerning elders have authority over. So, but there's nothing that says about apostles. However, I will point this out. It's quite logical to infer that women apostles were not a scriptural pattern because apostles have to teach and they have to exercise authority, just like elders. You can't be an apostle unless you teach or exercise authority. In fact, when churches were first started, they were started by apostles. And then as the other elders grew up, the apostles left and the elders took over. But they were doing the same thing the apostles were doing in the baby churches, in the infant churches. Paul told Titus to set in order existing churches. By recognizing elders, by ordaining or recognizing elders, appointing elders. Well, if that's not exercising authority, of course the authority is in the in the congregation they choose, and, and the apostle just recognizes. But, I mean, really, set in order, that really sounds like exercising authority to me of some sort, but maybe not. That's that's a little bit iffy. All right, so we'll give the feminists the, po- the, the point that it is possible, at least logically possible, even if, even if not possibly even if not probable it's logically possible that a woman can be an apostle because there's no scripture explicitly for prohibiting it now let's look at the translation problem verse 7 never without contradiction says that junia was an apostle now it all depends on the translation so let me give you the alternatives here now i read you the holman christian study bible that says that Andronicus and Junia were noteworthy in the eyes of the apostles. In other words, the apostles looked at them as a as a couple that 
excuse me, not a couple, as two people who were outside the body of the apostles, and the apostles looked at them and said, oh, you are really something. You are noteworthy. Now, so the Holman Christian Study Bible makes it clear, that translation makes it appear that Junius was not an apostle, just admired by the apostles, okay? The Lexham English Bible translates it the same way. Andronicus and Junius were well known to the apostles. Not that they were apostles, they were just well known to the apostles. The English Standard Version says the same thing as the Lexham, Lexham English Bible, that Andronicus and Junius were well known to the apostles. So if the feminists had those three Bibles, they'd have trouble. However, there are other Bibles that translate it this way, which make it possible, although not conclusive, if possible, it makes it sound like that she might be an apostle. For example, the New American Standard Bible says that Andronicus and Junia are outstanding among the apostles. That among there makes it sound like they are in the apostolic band. The KGV, the American Standard Version, and Young's Literal says who are of note among the apostles. The NIV says outstanding among the apostles, which is basically the same as the NASB. J.P. Green's literal translation says noted among the apostles. So they use that word among, and it makes it sound like that Junius was among the apostolic band. Well, the Greek construction is used elsewhere to mean well known to, and I don't have examples of that, but they're out there in the scriptures. And Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown quote a lot of authorities that say that the phrase here should be translated as, as well known to the apostles or noteworthy to the apostles. And J, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown quote Beza, Grotius, DeWitt, Meyer, Fritch, Stewart, Philippi, and Hodge. That's the famous Charles Hodge, I think. There's another Hodge, too, his father. I can't remember his name now. But anyway, he, these are well-known theologians. As they know, it just means well-known amongst the apostles. So that's the first problem the feminists had to tra have. The translation does not unambiguously proclaim that Junia was an apostle. Second problem with the feminist argument that Junia was an apostle. Junia might not be a woman's name. Let me give you one, two, three, four translations that translate Junia as Junius. The, the New American Study Bible, J.P. Green's literal translation, Young's literal translation, and the ASV have Junius as the translation. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say that the word might be Junius, which is a contracted form of Junianus. In this case, it is a man's name. John Gill says Junia should be read Junius, a contraction of Junilius. So it's not even uncontroverted that the name is actually Junia. Some translations have it as Junius, even though it's a feminine gender name, the, the Greek word. You know, gender in a language does not indicate sex. There's a lots of masculine things that sound, masculine sounding things that are feminine in gender, in, in grammar. And likewise, there's things we would consider feminine that are masculine in gender. All right, so the third issue, apostle. Maybe the word apostle is not even a capital A apostle, one of the original 12, or maybe it's not apostles who go around setting up church as churches as their ministry, which is the way I take it. But there's a third option. The word apostle might not mean anything but just a sent one, because that's what the word means, a sent one. So Junia would be a notable one who had been sent out to evangelize and so forth. Nothing wrong with women evangelists, of course. So the word apostle is not even... What, what the feminists would call an apostle, someone who has authority in the church. Now, authorities, authorities who said that the word apostle is just used in a loose sense of being sent, but not in reference to any kind of church position. Here's some authorities who hold to this view. This is quoted by Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. 
Chrysostom, the golden tongue orator from Constantinople, he believed that the word apostle was just meant Junia was sent out along with Andronicus, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Bingle, Olshausen, Tholuck, and Alford, and Jowett all said the same thing. So the word apostle might not even be an apostle. That's not clear. But let's say that we give the feminists all their arguments here, that they, they, they run the table, they, they pass the hoops, they jump through all those three grammatical hoops. Junia is a woman. The apostle is a church-planting apostle. And the translation is that she was among the apostles, not noteworthy in the eyes of the apostle. Give the feminists those three things. Now, this is what I would ask. Even granting the feminists those above grammatical questions, which I don't, but just for the sake of argument, I do. Isn't it strange that of all the apostles we know scripturally, only one of them was a woman? Seems to me like the exception proves the rule. And what was the rule? All the apostles were men. So that's the, the last argument against this nonsense that Junius was a woman, is that why would they only be one if it was a common practice for the early church to have women apostles? Let me make one last parting shot at this feminist nonsense about Junia. If Andronicus and Junia were Paul's fellow prisoners, and they were fellow prisoners at the same time, do you really think the jailers would put a woman in the same jail cell as Paul? I don't think so. Now, of course, that's not an ironclad argument. You could say, well, they were fellow prisoners at a different time. But that's not what the phrase fellow prisoners sounds like. It sounds like they're my fellow prisoners at the same time. Junia, the woman, is going to be in the same prison cell with Paul? I don't think so. You know, I was in China and listening to a woman right on the North Korean border. She was The reason I remember this woman, she was born the same month I was, in 1951. And she was she had a daughter that had been miraculously risen from the dead. I mean, she was flat brainwaves in a hospital in Xinjiang. And and when she came back to life, all the people in the rural area there knew this girl had had it. And, the, and of course, they the woman had been living there all her life, and they believed her. So she had a lot of credibility. And she went around, and she started telling people about Jesus. She's uninstructed in the Scripture. She doesn't know a lot. You know, she's an uneducated peasant woman, country woman. And... People start getting saved all over the place. And I think it was something like 14 churches she had gotten started. Oh, you say, well, she's an apostle. No, she was an evangelist. Nothing wrong with women evangelists. And what did she do? She knew she couldn't handle it. So she turned the churches over to a Christian brother. And there are not a lot of Christian men leaders in the church in China, unfortunately. 80, 60, 70, 80% of the church is women. But she found one and turned the churches over to the man, which I thought was quite commendable. Romans 16, 8 through 10, Paul continues, greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord, greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachys, greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ, greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Now there's a bunch of names, we don't know much about them, but we do know, according to the NIV study Bible, that Ampliatus, Urbanus, Stachys, and Apelles were common slave names found in the imperial household. So, People are getting saved over there in Rome, all the way in the imperial household, we can infer. Apollos, some say might mean Apollos, the famous Apollos that came from Alexandria to Ephesus, who had to be instructed by Aquila and Priscilla, who was the golden-tongued orator. Maybe Apollos ends up going from Ephesus back to Rome. We don't know. It's an interesting idea. Now, this Aristobulus guy, Paul says, greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Now, if you read the history of Herod the Great, which I would suggest you do because it's fascinating, and it helps helps you understand the New Testament. 
There was a grandson of Herod the Great. There were lots of Aristobuluses, actually, but there was one. There was a Aristobulus who was the grandson of Herod the Great, and he was the brother of Herod Agrippa I. Herod Agrippa I was the Herod in Acts 12. I forgot the chapter. I think it's Acts 12. But anyway, he went down to Caesarea, had an audience. He was wearing all this highfalutin silver armor, and the sun shone off of him, and the people said, oh, we're in the presence of a god, and Herod Agrippa didn't say, no, 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 I'm not a god. He just sat there and basked in all that divine glory, and then God struck him with worms, and he died with his guts coming out, with the worms crawling out of him. It's a great story. But anyway, Aristobulus was the brother of this Herod Agrippa I. He lived in Rome, and he was the close friend of the Emperor Claudius. He died around 45 to 48, according to Cranfield, the commentator, but his household still bore his name and had believers in it. Remember, Paul's in his early 50s now. I'm, excuse me, in the early 50s, writing this letter to Rome. And so Aristobulus is dead, but his household still had bore his name and had believers in it. So it's interesting. Maybe even somebody of King Herod the Great, the same guy that tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. Maybe one of his descendants had gotten saved. But that's really iffy because it's the household of Aristobulus, not Aristobulus himself, where the believers were that Paul was greeting so Aristobulus might not have been a believer, but his household still had believers in it, which is which is cool. Romans 16, verse 11, Paul continues, Greet Herodian, my fellow countrymen. Greet, give, greet those who belong to the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Now, the, the name Herodian indicates some connection to the family of Herod, just like Aristobulus' does. And because Paul mentions Aristobulus and Herodian in the same breath, this is a further indication that Aristobulus was Herod's grandson. And furthermore... Paul says that Herodian is my fellow countryman, which means he's his fellow Jew, which sounds like, hey, Herod's family is, is Paul's talking about Herod's family here, because Herod would be considered a Jew. His family would be considered Jewish, even though Herod the Great was from Edomidia and was not Jewish. But, you know, by this time, I assume they were Jewish. So I'm just going to say, for the sake of argument, that Aristobulus and Herodian were of King Herod's family, Paul's fellow countrymen, Jewish people who had gotten saved in Rome. When it says that when Paul says that Herodian is his fellow countryman, the NIV Study Bible says this is perhaps a reference to Herodian being a Jew. It sounds to me like it's more more than perhaps. It seems like probably to me. I mean, what country did Paul have? I mean, I guess he had Israel was his country, and Herodian might have been a Gentile living in Israel, but, you know, that's, I'm assuming it's a Jew. And Paul also says, greet those who belong to the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Now, Narcissus is sometimes identified with Tiberius Claudius Narcissus. Great name, huh? Well, he used to be a slave of the emperor Tiberius, and that's how he got his fancy name, I'm sure. And Tiberius freed him later on. Tiberius was emperor number three. Claudius was number five, I think. How did that work? Tiberius and then Caligula was four, and then Claudius is five. But anyway, he, Tiberius set him free, and he ended up making a lot of money. By the time Claudius became emperor, he had a high enough position in society where he could influenced Claudius, he became friends with Claudius, but unfortunately, of course, Nero didn't like Claudius and his family, and so Nero, he was a madman, he, he killed, uh, so anyway, Narcissus had to commit suicide when Nero became emperor, so Narcissus went from slave to freedman to wealthy freedman to dead, he was, he became Claudius' secretary, he was a big shot, but it, Paul didn't greet him, so either because he was already dead or because he was not a believer, we don't know, hopefully he was a believer, but it's only members of his household. But at any rate, you can see Christianity is spreading and spreading into the highest levels of Roman society. Praise the Lord. 
When Paul says, greet those who belong to the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord, it sounds like there's some of the members of the household of Narcissus who are not in the Lord. Well, of course, not, not everybody's going to get saved. The people who were not saved might have been including Narcissus, who, of course, is dead by now anyway, probably. He could be he's not a believer. He's probably dead. Romans 16:12. Greet Trophina and Trophosa, who have worked hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, who has worked very hard in the Lord. Now, Trophina and Trophosa, the names kind of go together, kind of sound good together. That's because they were maybe sisters, maybe even twins, according to the NIV study Bible I'm using. Because it was common to give same-sounding names from a common root to twins. Persis, that Paul says is his dear friend, the word means Persian woman, so I assume it's a woman. Notice if it is a woman, Paul can have dear friends that are women without anybody saying that he's going to get romantically involved with her. You can have friends of the opposite sex as long as you mind your P's and Q's and don't cross the line. This woman worked very hard. It shows that women can have vital ministry in church without being leaders. Let me give you a quote from John Gill. As these were women, their labor could not be understood of their laboring in the word of the Lord or in the public ministry of it, since this was forbid by the apostle and therefore would never commend them on account of it. But of their great usefulness and indefatigableness, boy, that's a word, because of their great usefulness, I'll skip it, I can't say it, but of their great usefulness and in serving the interest of their dear Lord with their purses, in relieving the poor of the church, in entertaining and supplying the ministers of the gospel, as well as by their private instructions, exhortations, and giving an account, and giving an account of their own experience, whereby they might greatly encourage, edify, and strengthen young converts. And now I can hear the feminists saying, oh, if we can't be leaders, we can't do anything in the church. You've discriminated against us, and, and we're just useless little flower pots ornaments and decorations in the church you just all you care about is our bodies you don't care about our minds you know listen as john gill just pointed out there's a thousand things women can do in the church just evangelism if nothing else romans 16:13. paul continues greet rufus chosen in the lord also his mother and mine now mark in chapter 15 verse 21 mentions a rufus let me read that they forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry jesus's cross he was Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus. So the famous guy, Simon of Cyrene, which is in northern Africa, he was in Jerusalem. He was carrying Jesus' cross because Jesus had gotten weak and couldn't carry it any further. He had a son named Rufus. Apparently, this guy Rufus was well known in the church because Mark wouldn't have mentioned Rufus unless he had become well known in the church. I mean, what's the big deal? If nobody knows who Simon the Cyrenian's kids are, why in the world would you mention them unless all the church had become well, unless the sons had become well known in the church? So Rufus was well known, and so it's a reasonable speculation to think this is the same Rufus who Paul is greeting in Rome. Now, Rufus's mother, was Paul says, also my mother. Well, how can that be? Well, it's because Paul's using mother in a non-literal metaphorical sense. Rufus's mother was Paul's mother in spiritual affliction. He was not, she was not Paul's natural mother, as Adam Clark says. I think that goes without saying. I mean, Rufus is from Cyrene, and originally his parents were from Cyrene, and Paul was from Tarsus not very close to each other, across the Mediterranean Sea. Now, Rufus is said by Paul to be chosen in the Lord. Here's some options as how we can translate that. It could be chosen in the sense of being one of the elect. In other words, greet Rufus, elect in the Lord. But the problem with that is every Christian is chosen in the Lord. Why single Rufus out as being elect? Well, I can answer that. It's just a nice thing to say someone 
to tell someone they've been elected by God. I could say that to, hey, John Doe, you're electing God. Doesn't that make you feel good? Not proud now, but thankful, grateful, humble. So I don't have any problem with saying that, that's, that Paul is telling Rufus, electing the Lord. Of course, now you're not going to hear any Pentecostal or Baptist or Arminian or Methodist or Holiness or anybody today call somebody, hey, electing the Lord. But you don't hear Calvinists say it either. Kind of interesting. I'm convinced that the early Christian culture is not anything like modern-day church culture in so many ways. In fact, I might just go out and call the next Christian. I say, hi, my friend, John Doe, electing the Lord. It's <laughs> just, just to see what he's going to say. But there's another way you could translate that. You could translate it, translate it as choice. Greet Rufus, choice in the Lord. In other words, like your choice portion of a steak is the part that comes out as the filet mignon, the choice part of the food. So it could mean a specially devoted Christian. He's choice. He's special. Well, maybe so. Romans 16, verses 14 through 15. Paul continues with his long list of personal greetings. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who were with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Well, what can we say about all this? Of course, most of these people we don't know. None of those names can actually be identified according to the NIV Study Bible. But the NIV Study Bible does say that they were slaves or freedmen in the Roman church, and I don't know how they know that, so I'll just, so I'll just state that as somebody's opinion. Paul mentions a Hermes here. Many of the ancients said he was Hermas, author of the famous Shepherd of Hermas, that famous early church history document that I'm sure if you're up on your church history you've heard of. But this is quite doubtful and uncertain, as John Gill says. Now, there's a phrase in here that's interesting. Paul mentions one, two, three, four, five names, and he says, and the brothers who are with them. Well, who are the brothers who are with Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, and Hermes? Who are those brothers who are with them? Why does he say that? With them how? And then he says, greet Philologus and Julia and Nereus and his sister and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. So he mentions some more names and he says some saints are with them. Well, it has been inferred from that that the brothers who were with them, the saints, actually, who were with them are the people who are meeting in their homes as a church meeting. Because remember, the church of Rome spread all over the city in different homes. So it would read like this, great Asyncritus and the brothers who are with them in, in Asyncritus' home as a church. Greet Phlegon and the brothers who are with Phlegon in his church, in his house. Greet Hermes and the brothers who are with Hermes in the church, in his house, etc. I think that's pretty probable. I don't know what else it could mean. However, Jameson, Foss, and Brown deny this. This is what they say. This probably hardly means that each of the five in both pairs had a church at his house. Else, probably this would have been more expressly said. But at least it would seem to indicate that they were each a center of some few Christians who met at his house. It may be for further instruction, for prayer, for missionary purposes, or for some other Christian objects. In other words, Jameson Fawcett Brown says, well, it wasn't really a church in the house, but it was something else. It was a Bible study or a missionary group. Well, whatever. Let's just say it was a church. And if so, that would indicate that little phrase, with them, which is mentioned twice, once in verse 14 and once in 15, that little phrase, with them, shows that they were house churches all through Rome. We go to verse 16 of Romans 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All of the churches, all the churches of Christ send you greetings. Now, the holy kiss was common. Paul mentions it three times, and Peter does once, first at least. 
1 Corinthians 16.20, all the brothers greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. 2 Corinthians 13.12, greet one another with a holy kiss. 1 Thessalonians 5.26, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. And Peter says in 1 Peter 5.14, greet one another with a kiss of love. All this kissing going on. And of course, that would include same-sex kissing. Well, what is this? Justin Martyr says that the holy kiss was a regular part of the worship of Justin Martyr's day, according to the NIV Study Bible. The NIV Study Bible says it's still a practice in some churches today, although I've never seen it. Why don't most people do it today? Because the Bible was written for us, but not to us. The Bible was written to. The Bible was written to people living in the in the ancient world, and they were the ones that were doing the holy kiss. That's not our custom today, except in some cultures, like in in France. Well, in France, they kiss the air on the left side of the, on the left cheek, then they kiss the air on the right cheek. And I've always thought that was kind of strange. Why not just put the skin of the lips on the skin of the cheek and get it done? But anyway. Everybody's culture is different. We have an equivalent today. It's called a handshake. Or actually in church circles now, a hug too. You can hug uh, same sex, you know. Well, you can also hug opposite sex people too. That's fine. If you're in Japan, you bow. But note that this holy kiss, which has been done away mostly, is a cultural thing that has been done away with. It is not a theological thing that has been done away with. And people often confuse those two things. Feminists often say, see there? Gender difference. So we have cultural differences that are done away with. We have holy kiss done away with. So we can do away with gender differences too. That's cultural. Same thing with gay rights activists. Well, well, you know, this idea that homosexuality was a sin, that was just cultural back then. But today, homosexuality is perfectly all right. Nonsense. That's bologna sausage. B.S. bologna sausage. There's nothing cultural about gender. It is, we're wired with our gender. It was given to us by God. It's in our genes. And all these transgender idiots that are talking about tra- postponing uh, puberty for kids so that they can be old enough to decide their own gender, they are the biggest fools that have ever hit the big time. Gender transcends culture. Now, one last comment on this. Why would Paul call it a holy kiss? Why didn't he just say, greet one another with a kiss? Well, he's trying to make a distinction between other kinds of kisses. As John Gill points out, it could be a sexual kiss. He doesn't want the brothers going up and smacking the sisters on the lips. You know, that's not a good idea. Well, I mean, I guess some cultures even do that as an innocent thing. You know, on the lips real briefly, maybe. I don't know. I would never do it, but some people might do it. But anyway, it's not sexual. So a holy kiss is a non-sexual kiss. And Gill also mentions a non-hypocritical kiss. For example, when Judas kissed Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. That was pretty hip- hypocritical. That was not a holy kiss. That was a hypocritical kiss. I don't know if Paul was thinking that or not. He's probably just thinking it was a non-erotic type kiss, a non-sexual kiss. It's all right to do that. And but, but again, the whole point of this is not what kind of greeting it was. The point is that you're supposed to greet one another. You're supposed to be friendly with one another. You're supposed to get along with one another. As in all of chapter 15 when Paul's telling them to get, get along. Love one another. All the churches of Christ send you greeting. And Paul had the authority to to deliver that because he had ministered in tons of them, lots of churches. And so he says, I'm sending you their greetings. Ladies and gentlemen, we have finished Romans 16, verses 1 through 16. We will continue with Romans 16 in the next audio. We are going to finish chapter 16. We're going to see Paul warning against divisive, heretical type people who would split the church up. Final exhortation to unity, and then he's going to sign off. So we'll see you in that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.